Well, good morning again. I'm back, and I am excited because we are wrapping up our series, My Big Fat Mouth. This is technically week four. Uh, Brody, a few weeks back, uh, spoke about criticizing and how that can really uh, hurt others and damage our testimony. And then Turner, Pastor Turner followed that up with an amazing message about lying. And then last week, was anybody here for Father's Day? Anybody in the room here for Father's No, no Father's? Anybody here for Father's Day? Yeah, that was amazing. I'm still, I've gone back and watched it again online because I just wanted to hear it again. The dads last week did an amazing job. It wasn't technically a part of the series, but they, I think my big takeaway is how our words, as dads, as people, as Christians, our words have to match our actions. And so today I get to wrap up and close this series, and I am so excited. I've, I've been spending a lot of time in prayer and kind of thinking through how do I want to, to wrap this up? How do I want to put a bow on it? What's the big takeaway? And I do have a topic that we'll dive into, but before I get there, I wanted to just share once again the anchor verse that we've been using throughout this series. It comes from Proverbs 18. Most of us probably realize this. We've experienced this. It says that the tongue has the power of life and death, and those who love it will eat its fruit. And basically, it's just saying that your mouth, your tongue is incredibly powerful, and you can spread hate, you can spread love. No matter what you're doing, you're going to reap what you sow. But there is power in our words. And some examples, Brody kind of kicked this off a few weeks back. He said that words are powerful. Number one, God created the universe using his words. And God said, let there be light. There was light. God said, let there be land. There was land. And he went through six days of creation, just speaking things into existence. As people, our words are really important. We have a marriage ceremony and two people can commit their lives to each other with two words. I do. And that is a covenantal marriage that you've entered into. Um, We can declare things like war with our words. You guys probably know this famous quote. I'll read it to you. It says, Yesterday, I'll try and do a historical voice for you. Yesterday, December 7th, 1941. (laughs) A date which will live in infamy, the United States of America was suddenly and deliberately attacked by naval and air forces of the Empire of Japan. You know who that was. That was Franklin D. Roosevelt when he declared war on Japan. And all this to say that our words, they can bring healing, but they can also bring wounds and hurt and damage. And so um, as we've been in this series, we've just been talking about the importance of words. But before we dive into today's topic, I just wanted to start with a question. And the question is, why do our words matter? Why do they matter? And as I was thinking through, you know, the opportunity that I have to share today, and why, why do our words matter? Why does it matter if we're critical or if we lie or if we complain or whatever? Why does it matter? What's the takeaway for this series? And as I began to think about this and pray about it, I realized that getting control of our mouth and using our words in a way that bring life to people around us is so incredibly important because of this. The truth matters. The truth matters. And words matter because truth matters. And there's only one truth, you guys. There's only one truth. If it's true for me, it's true for you. If it's true for you, it's true for me. It's not maybe true for you and maybe true for them and not true for... It's either true or it isn't, and so our words are incredibly important. And the only way that we can fight lies is with truth, with God's truth. And I loved uh, two weeks ago, Pastor Turner said that Satan, he's known as the father of lies. And in the creation story, we see how he slithered up to Eve, 
And God had given him this incredible garden with one rule, one simple rule, don't eat from the fruit on this tree. And Satan comes up, and from the very first words that we hear out of his mouth, he's already lying. And he said, did God really say you can't eat fruit from any tree in the garden? And it's like, no, he didn't say that. He said we couldn't eat fruit from this one tree. And he deceives Eve, and she breaks God's rule. She, we're, we're plunged into sin, and, and we ruin God's plan of perfection. But truth matters, and Satan is the father of lies. And so now all of us are born with this sin in our heart, and the sin, the, the lie is this. Can we believe what God said? Is what he says true? Does he really have my best interest in mind? Does he have this incredible life plan for me? And many of us are wrestling through life trying to answer that question. That's the search that everyone, whether they realize it or not, is on. Is there a life that God has created me for? And the answer is yes. Jesus said that he came to give us abundant life. And if what we have as the church if what we have to share is good news, if it really is true, then our words should reflect that. Our actions should reflect that. Our lives should be a reflection of that truth. And so our words matter because when we criticize, when we lie, when we complain, we're misrepresenting the truth that we claim to know. And so words are powerful. They have meaning. They really do matter. And so... That's sort of the question I wanted to start with. Why do words matter? It's because truth matters. And before we jump into today's topic, I want to just sort of do a really quick backtrack. Here in the last few months, we've had tons of new people visiting our church. We are so glad that you are here. We hope this is a place you can plug in and connect. And so I want to backtrack just a quick minute and share something that is near and dear to our heart as a church because it's near and dear to the very heart of God. Why is truth important? The Bible is full of the promises of God, and these promises have the power to completely transform our lives. And so I want to go back. I want to do a really quick recap. If, if you're old, it's going to be a refresher. You may have forgotten it. If you're new, this is probably going to be the first time that you've heard this. But I want to just talk about something that you've seen on our bathroom stalls, in our program, painted on the wall in the lobby. It's even here on our auditorium wall. It's this phrase of knowing God, finding freedom, discovering purpose, make a difference. Is this just a neat cliche that we needed to come up with a mission statement? And yeah, that sounds good. It'd be great for people to, to do these four things. And it, and it is neat. It's, it's concise. People can understand it and leave with it. But we actually take this from the Bible. And so I want to go back and take a look because the Bible is full of promises that have the ability to transform our lives. So let's start here. The definition of a promise is an offer with a guaranteed result. If I promise you something, if what I'm saying is true, and if I'm a man of my word, then this is an offer that I'm giving to you with a guaranteed outcome. It's guaranteed to happen. That's what a promise is by definition. So do me a favor this morning. Let me see you raise your hand if you have ever had a promise broken to you. Has anybody ever experienced a broken promise show of hands? Yes, probably. I'm assuming all of us. And if not, you haven't lived enough life yet. You're too young. Uh, okay, this is going to be a really sad show of hands. Have you ever been the one that made a promise and did not keep it? Raise your hands. Come on. It should be probably all of us. We experience broken problem, promises all the time. 
you know, the vows that we make in marriage today, they don't mean a whole lot. We've experienced broken promises with our spouse, our children, our parents, our friends, our employers. Everywhere we turn, there are broken promises. And God has said and promised so many things to us in his written word. What makes him any different? Why can we bank on God's promises? What makes him different? Your circumstances... Your experiences, broken promises that you've experienced should not reflect on the nature of God. And I believe that what we have done as a church and as people is we've elevated our feelings above truth. Where truth no longer matters if my circumstances don't support that. If, if where I find myself in life doesn't support the truth, then it must not be true. And it should be the other way around because truth is truth regardless of our circumstances. And if that's true, then our job is to mold our lives to that truth, not the other way around. And that's why today I want to remind you of the definition of a promise. It's an offer with a guaranteed result. And when God makes promises, this is something that we can take to the bank. You can bank on the promises of God. And so when we talk about God's promises, it's an entirely different matter than promises that I make and that you make because he always fulfills them. And maybe not always in the way that we want or in the timing that we want, but he always fulfills his promises. There's three scriptures. I just want to read them briefly. Joshua 21, 45 says, Not a single one of all the good promises the Lord had given to the family of Israel was left unfulfilled. Everything he had spoken came true. Hebrews 6, God also bound himself with an oath so that those who received the promise could be perfectly sure that he would never change his mind. So God has given both his promise and his oath. These two things are unchangeable because it is impossible for God to lie. Therefore, we who have fled to him for refuge can have great confidence as we hold to the hope that lies before us. And finally, in Numbers 23, it says, God is not a man, so he doesn't lie. He is not human. He doesn't change his mind. Has he ever spoken and failed to act? Has he ever promised and not carried it through? And so this is just biblical evidence to make the point that God does not break his promises. He keeps them. And the promises he's made to us are in his word. And that's why it's important for us to be in our Bible, to know scripture, to know the truth. So when we face circumstances, when we face lies, when we, people are critical against us, when we feel like complaining, we have a way to reject the lies and replace it with truth. And so when I mention knowing God and finding freedom and discovering purpose and making a difference, these are four promises that we find in the Old Testament and throughout the Old Testament. Old Testament into the New Testament that is at the very heart of God. The Bible is full of of thousands of promises, but all of them hinge and are centered around four core promises that we find in the book of Exodus. And I'm not going to do a deep dive into this. You can go back, and we've done a couple series, in fact, on these four key promises. But I just want to remind you because truth matters, words matter. Exodus 6, I just want to read it quickly. It says, therefore, and let me just set this up. We find that the Israelites, they've spent generation after generation in captivity. They're supposed to be uh, leading the world. They are God's special chosen people, and they find themselves in slavery under Pharaoh's rule, and they've been holding on to these promises. God hasn't come, and so God goes to Moses, and he says, I want you to go to Pharaoh and tell him these four things. Therefore, say to the Israelites, I am the Lord. 
I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. I will take you as my own people and I will be your God. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. And so there are four I will statements in there that we're going to just quickly go through that God gave to the Israelites. But here's the thing. They weren't just for the Israelites. They are for us today. They're for everyone. God has these four promises in his heart from the beginning of time, and this is what he has for us. The first promise, he says, I will bring you out. I will bring you out. And that's the first key phrase about knowing God, and it's basically talking about salvation. The very first promise that God has for you and for me and for everyone, his first desire is simply to get you out of bondage. We don't have to clean ourselves up. We don't have to get our act together. We don't have to try and make ourselves right with God. We just have to recognize that Jesus paid the ultimate sacrifice for our brokenness and our sin. We can turn to him, recognize that gift, and say, God, I give you control of my life. Please make me yours. I give you who I am. Use me for your kingdom, and God will save us. And that's what he did with the Israelites. Through 10 plagues, He sent on uh, Egypt and Pharaoh. God changed the heart of Pharaoh. And he said, all right, I'm going to let you take your people. So Moses and the Israelites, they leave Egypt. And then Pharaoh changes his mind. He pursues. And what does God do? He parts the Red Sea. They're able to cross. They're wandering around in the desert. And God sends them bread from heaven. He sends them water from a rock. He makes it where their clothes won't wear out. He does all of these incredible things simply to get them out of their bondage. And God wants to do that for you. And he wants to do that for me. He just simply wants to save us. He wants to relocate us from hell to heaven. He wants to change our eternal destination. And basically, it's a change in direction in the sense that we give Jesus control of our lives. Our trajectory is towards God instead of away from him. The second I will statement is I will free you. And this is all about finding freedom. It's talking about deliverance. And here's the deal. You can, ha- you can give your life to Christ. You can say, you know what? I believe Jesus was real. I believe he died on the cross. I believe he was the son of God. I believe what the Bible says is true. You can give your life to Christ, and you, you can be made new on the inside, spiritually speaking, but there's a problem. Just like the newborn baby is fully alive, they still have a lot of growing to do. And the same thing is, is for us. When we give our lives to Christ, we're a new creation. But we're a baby spiritually, and there's a lot of growing to do. And so the moment we give our lives to Christ... He makes us new on the inside, but our behavior, our baggage, the things that we've done in our life, they don't just magically disappear. There's a process of finding freedom. And just because God got the Israelites out of Egypt didn't mean that Egypt was out of them. And so all of us are in this process of finding freedom. God got Israel out of Egypt, and that's salvation, but he had to remove Egypt from them, and that's freedom. And God promises freedom from our past, our sinful nature, So freedom is different from salvation. Salvation takes care of our eternity. Freedom determines our quality of life while we're here on earth. The third I will statement, I'm going to redeem you. And this is about discovering our purpose. This is where things get really fun in the Christian life. Because number one, you know God. He saved you. You're finding freedom. You're understanding that you can be freed from your past. And if you begin to... cover your wiring and how God designed you and the reason that he created you, this is where you get to experience restoration. And you get to say, man, God didn't just save me so I could go to heaven. He saved me so I could make a difference on this planet for his kingdom. And so this is where things get really fun. But unfortunately, many of us get stuck in these first two promises. 
we just feel like, well, I give my life to Christ, but I'm never going to really mount up to much. I'm never going to be like Pastor Greg, Pastor Brody, you know, XYZ, so-and-so, full-time ministry. That's just not for me. But that's a lie because God can use you right where you are as a husband, as a wife, as a student, as an employee. He wants to redeem you and, and, and show you that he has incredible purpose for your life. And the fourth I will is he wants to take you as his own people. And this is where we get to make a difference as a movement, as a church, as the body of Christ. And though each person comes to salvation and freedom and gets to discover God's original intent for us, his final promise is he wants to make us a community. And it's a very beautiful thing. It's the ultimate goal. And when you walk through these four promises, that fourth step is where we live lives of true fulfillment and satisfaction. That's what life is all about. We know God. We found freedom. We know why we're here. And we get to use our gifts to serve others to make a difference with our lives. And so today, the topic I want to dive into is going to help us know where we stand in relationship to these four promises. How do we know where we are in relation to these four promises? Well, our words, our big fat mouths, they will help give us clues that show us the answer to this question. Again, the power of life and death is in the tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruit. Grab your notes, grab your pen, fill in the blanks, track along with me, because I want to get through this. Number one, words are powerful tools. They're powerful tools. And tools are useful. Uh, You can use tools in so many different ways. You can construct with tools. You can deconstruct with tools. They have a specific purpose, just like our words do. We can build people up. We can tear them down. Our, our words are tools. They're not necessarily bad in and of themselves. It's how you use them. And so, uh, you know, one example of, of incorrect use of words would be uh, a kid using adult uh, words in the wrong way. So like as an adult, you know what I'm talking about, parents. If you say things in your everyday life that coming from an adult are perfectly normal, but the moment you hear your four-year-old saying it, you're like, oh, maybe I shouldn't say that. And a great example is our esteemed worship pastor, Pastor Nate. He was watching football with Ashlyn. He's a big Redskin fan. And he would do the Christian version of a profanity and he would say, what the frick? What, what the frick, right? And, and that's fine coming out of Nate's mouth. You probably wouldn't even think twice. But when Ashlyn walks around saying, what the frick, what the frick, what the frick? <laughs> that's not so cool, right? And, and I got to tell you, Nate, she's doomed for a life of this type of profanity as a Redskins fan. That's what's in, <laughs> that's what's in store for her. Uh, I'm sorry. But uh, I would not be surprised if she just sounds like a sailor one day. I've just got to say that. But... Um, <laughs> But that's obviously an incorrect use of of words, and I'm joking, I'm kidding, Nate, love you, you're an awesome dad. (laughs) The right tool used by the right person in the right way at the right time makes all the difference. So, you know, I could grab a sledgehammer, and that's an awesome tool if I want to, like, bust through a wall, but if I'm doing, like, finished carpentry, I wouldn't want to get up to, like, a little finish nail and have a sledgehammer in my hands. It's not the right use of that, that tool. Um, a level is incredibly useful if you want to make things straight or flat or level, right? You use that, but you wouldn't hammer a nail or, or lay tile with a level. I'm a surgical scalpel. You know, it's great for doing surgery, but you wouldn't want to brush your hair with that. So there's, there's uses for tools in specific ways. Our words are no different. 
I want to give you three quick ways that you can use your words as tools. So number one, you can write this down. Our words can be a diagnostic tool. A diagnostic tool. And these are, these are awesome tools. Uh, you might be thinking, what, is, what does diagnostic mean? These are tools that don't actually fix anything. They just give you information about potential problems or issues. So a stud finder would be an example. A stud finder doesn't actually fix anything, but when you hold it up on the wall and you push the button and move it over, you can find where the studs are, and then you could hang a picture or hang drywall, and you can actually do the work that needs to be done. It helps you diagnose where are the studs in my wall. Um, An ultrasound machine. These are like super expensive. They're amazing technology. They couldn't even see babies in the womb, you know, however long ago that was. But now... 3D technology, it's like 4K HD TV, and you can see incredible images of a baby in the womb, and these, these tools don't actually do anything. You can't do surgery, you can't go in and fix anything, but you can see, you can diagnose. Um, all of you, you're driving around with this in your car, you don't even maybe know it, the OBD system, it's the onboard diagnostics, and that's where they plug up a little scanner and they can read the codes on your car to figure out what are the issues, why is my check engine light on? Well, words can be used as a diagnostic tool as well. And fill this in. Words can be used like a thermometer to help me gauge the condition of my heart. A thermometer doesn't actually make you better. It just tells you if you're sick. You stick it in your mouth. I've got a, I've got a fever. I need some medicine. I've got to go to the doctor. A thermometer is not very useful other than telling you the condition of your temperature. Your words can help you gauge the condition of of your heart. In Matthew 12, it says, For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. A good man brings good things out of the good stored up in him, and an evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in him. Our mouths simply give evidence to what's already in our heart. So if you want to keep uh, your finger on the pulse of your spiritual heart, just put it in your mouth, I guess. Listen to your words. How do you sound when you talk to your spouse? How do you sound when you talk to your kids? How do you sound when you talk behind your boss's back? How do you sound, fill in the blank, what do your words confirm about you and the condition of your heart? And I want to get sort of in your business a little bit this morning. It's a little bit like our money. Money can be a great gauge of where my heart is. The Bible says in Matthew 6, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. So your money, your treasure, your mouth, your words, these are all ways that we can gauge the condition of our heart. But I don't want you to be misunderstanding because we can look really clean, we can say the proper words, we can act a right way, and our hearts can still be really far from God. So our words don't necessarily dictate, oh, I'm clean, I never cuss, I never, you know, I'm super patient, whatever. That's awesome. I'm proud that you have that self-control. But you can be very hypocritical in how you act and what's going on in your heart. So all I'm trying to say is that our words and our money are great gauges to help identify the condition of your heart. If you use your words to gauge your heart and you don't like what you're finding, maybe your language isn't great. Maybe you're always critical, always lying, always complaining. Then this is uh, good news for me and it's good news for you because number two, our words can be used as an adjustment tool. We can use our words to adjust our hearts. So just like we can use our words as a thermometer to gauge the condition of our heart, 
Words can be used as a thermostat to help change the condition of your heart. If you don't like the way that you're sounding, or maybe you don't know, and you could ask your spouse, like, hey, how do I sound? And they'll, they'll give you the true picture of what you sound like. If you don't like that answer, then this is great news for us. In James 3, it says that when we put bits into the mouths of horses to make them obey us, we can turn the whole animal or take ships as an example. Although they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are steered by a very small rudder wherever the pilot wants to go. Likewise, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. Consider what a great force is set on fire by a small spark. Sometimes our mouths, the use of our words, they steer our whole lives. If we get angry, then we're going to let people have it. You know, we're in the car flipping people off and cussing, and we're just driven by the way that we feel. If we're sad, it's like nothing's going right. You sound like Eeyore, right? Like it's raining woe is me, I'm probably going to be sick tomorrow, the sun's never going to shine again, and it's because we've allowed our feelings to dictate the use of our words. But I think that for most of us, if we use our words to diagnose what's going on in our hearts and we're honest, we would admit it's way too easy to be critical, to lie, to complain, and there are important spiritual reasons why using our words to bring life is important, but there's also some really practical reasons. And I just want to give you a couple of really practical reasons why I think you might consider cleaning up the way that you use your words. If you find yourself always complaining about everything going on in your life, here are practical reasons to not complain. Number one, this is like psychology and science and it's facts. There's been studies done on this. Repeated complaining rewires your brain and it rewires it for more complaining. It's just like lying. A small lie needs a a bigger bodyguard to keep the small lie safe, right? It's like you tell that one lie and it's like a snowball effect and you're like, how did I get into this mess? It just started with the little white lie and it continued on. The more that we complain, the more that we reprogram our brains for complaining. And that leads to finding things, uh, (laughs) sorry, we find it easier to be negative. The more that we complain, the more we're going to complain, the more easy it is to find negativity all around us. And this leads to confirmation bias. And I see this almost on a nightly basis with my kids. I don't know if Carly's in here, but we love when our kids sit at the table and say, what's that? And they don't even know what we're about to eat. And you answer and they're like, I don't like that. All right? It's like, well, of course you're not going to like it, you little (laughs) treasure. You know, it's because you sat down, you don't even know what the dish is called, but suddenly you know you don't like it, right? And so we do the same thing. We go to church and visit and like, I'm not going to like the worship. I'm not going to like the pastor. I'm not going to like these people. My job's terrible. I'm never going to get paid enough. I'm never... The more we complain, the more we're going to complain. The more we're going to be able to find negative things going on in our life and suddenly everything we thought was going to be true turns out to be true because of our negative complaining attitudes. It's a confirmation bias. And so I have two things that I think can help us as we think about being negative and complaining. Number one, if you can change your circumstances, then do something about it. Is anybody else just tired of being around negative people? 
Does anybody want to just like implode Facebook and implode social media and just be like done with the whole thing? Like I can't even scroll like two statuses and somebody's got something and they just feel like they, their opinion is going to change the world with how cruddy they feel about whatever. If you can change your circumstances, then do it. Don't sit around and complain about your job. Go find another job. Don't complain about your boss. Be the best employee you can be and make your little pocket of influence amazing. Do it as unto the Lord. If you can change your circumstances, change them. Do something about it. But here's the key. If you can't change your circumstances, your only option is to change your perspective. If you can't change your circumstances, change your perspective. The Israelites, they needed a change of perspective, and we need a change of perspective. This is nothing new. God came through with the Israelites. He got them out of Egypt. He promised them freedom. They find themselves free for the first time in generations, and God's providing manna, water, amazing clothes that don't wear out. He's getting them and guiding them to the promised land, and here's what they have to say to Moses, and I'm going to do this in a whiny voice because it makes me feel better. Exodus 14 They said to Moses, Was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us to the desert to die? What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, Leave us alone. Let us serve the Egyptians. We love being slaves. It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. And they have no clue where God's leading them, where he's taking them, what he's doing in their lives. And this is because they and we have a slave mentality. And that's that second promise. We have to find freedom from our slave mentality. But here's the problem, folks. We're not just grumbling about life. We're not just venting. We're not just letting off steam. We're grumbling against the truth. We're actually grumbling against God. Exodus 16 says, you're not grumbling against us, but against the Lord. And this was Satan's tactic. He's taking our eyes off the goodness of God and place them squarely on ourself. And it ruins our perspective. When Jesus, though, when he is the center of our story, it changes everything. The moment that everything is about us, we complain. If it's about us, that's what we find easiest to do. Well, I, I, this isn't my preference. This didn't meet my expectation. It's about me, me, me. But if we recognize that life is not about us, it's no longer I who lives, but Christ who lives within me, it changes how we live our story. It's not about us, and we're not living for the here and now, for our pleasure anymore, because heaven is our home, and we're simply passing through. And we don't have to wait for heaven to experience heaven on earth. We get to be heaven. We get to be the light to the darkness, to those around us. And so I'm not here today to try and convict you into feeling a certain way. I want to bring a word of encouragement. I don't want you to just encourage you to not complain or not lie or not criticize because it's bad you shouldn't do it. I want to help take the take your eyes off yourself and put them so on the goodness of God that you're moved beyond the easy fruit of complaining and into the joyous fruit of worship because you continue to see the goodness of God. So rather than feeling guilty, I hope you feel encouraged in the grace of God and it moves you into a higher level of the use of the way that you speak because we have a reason to praise God, people. We have a reason to praise God. I'll try and make it through this next part. I'm already feeling it coming. I'm going to get through this. But you probably know uh, my story recently. 
Uh, we talked about an ultrasound machine being an excellent way to diagnose things and see miracles of life happening in front of our eyes. Carly and I were uh, pregnant with our fourth child. And, you know, early April, I'm terrible with months. I think it was April. Whenever the 20-week ultrasound was, found out that there was an issue with our baby's heart. And it was called aortic stenosis, which just means a small aortic valve. And so blood can't flow through like it's supposed to. The left ventricle gets overworked. And typically, aortic stenosis leads to something called hypoplastic left heart. And that's where the left heart doesn't develop properly. It wears out. It basically dies. It's just not there. It's not fully formed. It's not fully functioning. And so kids that are born with hypoplastic left heart go through up to three surgeries. It's open heart surgery like days after birth and six months after birth and two to four years after birth. And it's amazing what they can do. They replumb the heart. They redo the circulation. The right ventricle takes over the load and it becomes the, the one pumping chamber. All of you, all of us, unless you have HLHS in here today, have two pumping chambers. But these amazing kids have one pumping chamber and they, they hook up the aortic artery, the, the aorta, to the right ventricle, and it becomes the pumping chamber. And so we're in this ultrasound. We see this issue. It's obviously pretty scary. It's not what you want to hear. Hey, there might be a problem. You need to go for further testing. And we did further testing, and they confirmed, yep, aortic stenosis. It's not hypoplastic yet, but it's probably 99% of the time it heads that direction. If you do nothing, that's where you're going to end up. So we went to Boston. We did an in utero surgery. It's amazing. They went through Carly's belly with a needle, through the ribcage of the baby, into the baby's heart. They go through the aortic valve. They can stick a, a balloon in there. They can expand the valve. They did that. It was successful. We're, we were so happy. And so then you just sit back and you wait. Is the heart, is that left ventricle going to respond to this open valve? And so from that time until to, till now, till Friday when we just had our most recent appointment, we're in this gray area. And doesn't God just love to keep you in gray areas where you just don't know where it's going to go, right? Like it's not functioning the way that it should. It's not healed. It's not sort of doing what it's supposed to do. But it's also not clearly hypoplastic. It's, you know, you're in this gray area. And it's like, well, thanks, Doc, you know. And so Carly and I, obviously, you know, we've shed tears about this. We've, we've been discouraged. You know, you want healthy kids. It's not been a fun place to live in. But here's the deal, folks. We can't change the circumstance. What are we going to do? Change our perspective. What are you going to do when you face something in your life that you can't change the circumstance? And all you can do is change your perspective. How are you going to respond? Are you going to cri be critical? Are you going to complain about God blessing everybody else and poor old me never gets any of God's blessings? Are you going to believe the lies that Satan wants to plant in your heart and in your mind, believing that God doesn't have the best for you? Because he does, guys. He doesn't lie. What he says is true. We can go to the bank on it. From the beginning of time, we're born with this lie in our hearts that what God has said is not true, but it is. And so we do not allow circumstance to dictate to us truth. So we change our perspective. So I don't know where I am on my notes. I'm going to find that real quick. <laughs> Truth is why we praise God in the middle of a storm. Just like we would when we're on top of a mountain, God's goodness and faithfulness and promises haven't changed just because our circumstances have. So why would I complain or gripe or grumble in the valley and praise God on the mountaintop? Hypocrite, right? Like right here. If I'm going to say God is so good, I got a raise at my job, uh, my, you know, got a new car, got a new house, 
did XYZ, amazing vacation. Man, God is good. And you lose your job. Or you go through a tough relational issue. Or fill in the blank, some disaster comes on your life. And what, suddenly God isn't good anymore? That is a lie from the pit of hell, you guys. Circumstances don't dictate the faithfulness or the goodness of God. And we've elevated our feelings and our circumstances above the truth. But if truth is truth, regardless of our circumstances, then it is our job to mold our lives to that truth, not the other way around. Our present circumstances no longer have any hold over those who believe. In 1 Corinthians, it says, Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that you labor in the Lord is not in vain. When you feel like crap, when you feel like God's promises aren't true, when things aren't going the way that you had planned, don't give up because you're not laboring in vain. This isn't scripture. These are phrases that I wrote down. So God, please forgive me if this is heresy. But I believe that these are phrases that God is okay with. Phrase number one, God, I'm a complete wreck. I need your strength. God, I'm afraid, but I know you're with me. Father, I don't know what to do next. Show me the way. Lord, help my unbelief. I want to believe, but I'm just not there. Mark 9, there's a story about a man who came to Jesus. His son was demon-possessed. He had been that way from birth. He asked God for a miracle, and he says to Jesus, but if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. And Jesus, I love his response. He's like, if you can, like I'm the Savior, like if you can, Everything is possible for the one who believes. Immediately, the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe, but help overcome my unbelief. And I just feel, honestly, you guys, if I'm being honest with you, that's, I think God honors that. It takes a mustard seed of faith. It doesn't take this overwhelming faith where we just look at all the evidence and say, I reject it, it's not true. I, you know, if you have that faith, I, come hang out with me. If you want that type of faith, go hang out with Melinda Wood and she'll kick your butt with the Bible and you will leave amazing. It is awesome. <laughs> but sometimes I just have a little mustard faith seed and I think God honors that. It can move mountains. And if we say, God, I believe, but help my unbelief. It's not like we're speaking out two sides of our mouth. He knows what's there. He knows where you're struggling. Be honest with him. God, I, I want to believe. I'm trying to believe. Help my unbelief. If you're lacking joy, but you want joy, then rejoice. Give thanks for what you do have. The Bible says we will be known by our fruit. And this is why I think, this is like the takeaway for what I'm trying to tell you today. The Bible says we'll be known by our fruit. And the world is watching. The world is watching. Yes, I want to experience God's awesome fruit in my own life, and I want to see it in your life, but outside of these four walls, our neighbors, our bosses, our classmates, they are watching the fruit in our life. And if our words and our actions don't match up with the truth, then why give God a try if Christians are just as negative, if they complain just as much, if they lie just as much, if they're just as critical, then then what's the difference? Our words and our actions need to change because the world is watching our fruit. I think this is our response. This this can be and should be our response. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 8. We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed. We're perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not abandoned. Struck down, but not destroyed. 
If you are still breathing, there is still hope for your situation. I don't know where you are, but there is still hope for you. Number three, we're going to just blast through this last little bit. Activation tool. Words can be used as an activation tool. Words can be used as a catapult to launch others into their destiny because it's not about us. I don't want to use today to beat you up or make you feel guilty. I want to use this opportunity to challenge you, to inspire you, to launch you out of this room to go be a light into a credibly dark world. 1 Peter 2 says, You are a chosen people. You are royal priests, a holy nation, God's very own possession. As a result... You can declare, you can declare to others the goodness of God, for he called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. I want to just read as fast as I can read today a quick excerpt, because this just made such an impact on me. And uh, it comes from a book called Love Does. We're talking about our words and the power of our words and how we can use our words. And so I'm, I'm going to read fast. Hopefully you can listen fast. It's a pretty good section. This guy named Bob Goff, he's pretty incredible. He loves Jesus. He's super weird and he's super quirky and he just lives this life that just is sort of like, he just lives this life unabandoned for God. It's pretty incredible. And he graduated with a degree in something that he wasn't passionate about. He didn't really even know a lot about the subject material, even once he graduated. And he didn't know what was next. He didn't have much direction in his life. And so he, he felt like God had put this desire in his heart to become a lawyer, all right? Like a lawyer, how can God use those people, right? But he said, you know what? I want to be a lawyer, and I'm going to do a lot for God's kingdom. If you're a lawyer, we love you. Please come back. <laughs> but uh, he, he didn't go to school, like preparatory school or anything, and he, he took this test that he wasn't prepared for. He failed miserably, and he still applied to law school. And so that's the backstory to, to where I'm going to pick it up. He, he didn't get any, many letters back. Everyone he got back was a big rejection, he, it wasn't going well. I'm going to read fast. There was one problem with all of this, with me not getting into law school. You see, I wanted to be a lawyer so I could help make an impact in the world, which meant I had to graduate from law school with no defensible case for admission anywhere. I still decided I wouldn't take no for an answer. I knew the law school I wanted to attend, so about a week before class started, I went over to the great big hall with the dean's office and admissions staff. I introduced myself at the front desk, and they seemed pleased to meet the person who had been phoning them incessantly to confirm that, indeed, he really didn't get in. I walked into the dean's large office, knocked on the door, and sheepishly entered the room covered with bookshelves and intelligence. The dean of the law school stood up and greeted me with the reserved but polite formality that fit his position and title. I shoved my hand forward confidently, like they say in the books to do, and introduced myself. Hello, I'm Bob Goff, and I applied to get into your law school, I said. I applied because I want to be a lawyer and make a real difference in the world. The dean smiled politely, didn't say a word, and remained standing. Apparently, this wasn't enough to convince him. There's a problem, however, you see. I didn't get an acceptance letter. For that matter, I didn't even get a rejection letter. I didn't get put on a waiting list either. But I want to get into your law school and graduate, or I can't be a lawyer someday. I thought I had framed my situation pretty well. The dean shook my hand again as he said, this is, my, uh, this is a competitive program, and unfortunately, we have to turn down many qualified candidates, mercifully. Mercifully, he skipped the part about me not being one of them. It was nice to meet you, he said, still shaking my hand. Once he broke his grasp, he put his hand on my shoulder and started moving toward the door. His body language left nothing to be misinterpreted. 
I hope you have a nice day, he offered as he began to slowly close the door. I had the chance to say one last thing before the dean disappeared into his paneled office. So I stopped the closing door with my foot and said, you have the power to let me in. I know all you have to do is tell me, go buy your books, and I could be a student in the law school. It's that simple. You just need to say the words. He gave me a half grin indicating he thought it was a cute idea, but it wasn't going to happen. Then the door closed. I'm sure he thought he was finished with me and could go on with the important business of training the law students who actually had potential. There was a bench in front of the dean's office, and it reminded me of a bench I frequently warmed in the principal's office during elementary school. There were five days left before law school started, and I decided I would park myself on that bench every day. Every time he passed by, I would say to the dean, all you have to do is tell me, go buy your books. It was a last-ditch plan from a determined surfer. The first time the dean walked by, he asked me why I was still there. I told him that while I understood they had turned down my application, I knew he had the power to let me in. All he had to do was say the words, go buy your books. He smiled at me and walked away. I had a lot of time to think sitting on my bench day in, day out. I thought about instances in the Bible where all it took was saying the word to make it happen. Jesus would say a word and people would be healed. He just said, come to a guy named Peter, and that guy ended up walking on water for heaven's sake. There was even a time when Jesus was on his way to a soldier's house to heal a servant, but the soldier said all Jesus had to do was say the word and his alien servant would be better. As I sat on my bench, I believed words still had power when they are said by the right people. With four days to go before school started, I was back at my post bright and early in the morning. Every time the dean passed in or out of his office, I would say, just tell me to go buy my books. He'd just nod, sometimes shake his head, and sometimes completely ignore me and then walk away. The same thing occurred three days, two days, then one day before law school started. I missed the 1960s, but I still felt like this was a sit-in and I was part of it. By the third or fourth day on the bench, I knew everything about the dean's schedule. I knew when he took his bathroom breaks, his daily meetings, when he left for the gym, when he returned. Every time he darkened the door of his office, I'd be sitting there smiling, waiting for him to say the words, words that could change everything for me. At dawn on the day law school started, I sprang out of bed. I just knew this was going to be the big day for me. At seven o'clock in the morning, I was on my appointed bench. I watched all the smart kids arrive, bustling around, sizing each other up their high-functioning den ricocheted off the marble walls and columns. I sat there eager to hear the words, but I didn't even see the dean the entire day, and I was dejected. My plan to make it into law school before the opening day hadn't worked, so I took a lap around the halls and decided that if I couldn't make it into law school before it started, I'd just get in afterward and catch up. The dean passed by at least a dozen times in the course of the second day. Just tell me to buy my books, I'd say each time, and each time nothing. Day two of law school ended, as did day three. I was falling behind at law school, and I wasn't even admitted. Day four, day four, still nothing. On day five, for the first time, my hope was starting to crater as I dragged myself to my perch. All the smart kids had settled into their routines and the rigors of law school, and the only noises that echoed off the halls in the large marble hall were mine. I mused in my boredom about what it would sound like if I brought my Fender Stratocaster in and played a couple of my favorite Doobie Brother riffs. I decided I'd save that for graduation day. Late in the afternoon, we're almost done, I heard the familiar footfall of the dean walking toward the door. I glanced at my watch. This was a little early for him to be leaving, but a little late for his mid-afternoon bathroom stop. There was nothing about this schedule I didn't know, and then his footsteps stopped. Without a lot of fanfare, the dean turned the corner from his office, and as usual, I prepared to say, just tell me to go buy my books. 
Something was different this time, though, because instead of avoiding me and walking away without saying anything, the dean just stood there towering over me. There was a long pause. The dean looked me squarely in the eyes, gave me a wink, and said the four words that changed my life forever. Go buy your books. And I did. I once heard somebody say, you don't know why I'm crying in a second. (laughs) I once heard somebody say that God had closed the door on an opportunity they had hoped for, but I've always wondered if when we want to do something that we know is right and good, God places that desire deep in our hearts because he wants it for us and it honors him. Maybe there are times when we think a door has been closed and instead of misinterpreting the circumstances, God wants us to kick it down or perhaps just sit outside of it long enough until somebody tells us we can come in. Words can launch us. We don't need to be a dean to say words that change everything for someone. Instead, God made it so that ordinary people like you and like me can launch each other. In fact, I wonder if we can launch people better than a dean because we're ordinary. I believe it's true that the right people can say words that change everything. And guess what? We are the ones that get to say them. And so as we wrap up today, we've talked about words being an activation tool. I kind of want to just shift gears big time and not think about us or our life or our problem or lying or criticizing or complaining. I want to just start to think about for a second, our neighbors, or the person in the cube across from us, or our spouse, or whoever it is you know that you know is not in right standing with God. And guys, I want to tell you that the moment that you leave these doors today, all of you probably are going to go somewhere to eat. What are you going to say to people that you encounter on a daily basis who are going to hell? Heaven and hell are real places, and people really go there. And we're drifting through life like everything's fine because we found this truth and we sit on it or we misrepresent it. And I'm here to say, shame on us as the church. There's more that we can do to impact our communities, our neighbors, our families, our city, this world. We get to launch people with the truth. First Peter, I already said this, you're a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's very own possession. We get to declare to others the goodness of God, for he called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. And if what we believe is true, if it's the truth, it's true for everybody. And I want to encourage you today that you have the opportunity to say words that will bring life to dark situations that could impact people's futures and impact their entire destiny. It can impact their eternity. And all we have to do is say, come in, go buy your books. It's not like the Moose Lodge next door. We're not a club. You can come join us. In fact, you don't even have to come to the building. We're going to come to you. We're going to spread this message all over. And so I want you to leave today asking yourself this question. What is God saying? And what does he want me to say? What is God saying and what does he want me to say? If you were just to close your eyes just for five seconds and ask yourself that question in your mind, what is God saying and what does he want me to say? You're going to begin to get some answers and it may make you uncomfortable. You may not like it, but be bold today. When you leave this place with your waiter, with your whoever you encounter, spread life, give an encouraging word, tell people the truth. I want to leave you with this final verse in 1 John 4. It says that greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world.